Um, so I am stubborn, uh, really quite stubborn. If you know me quite well, you probably already figured that out. Um, and I pride myself on my total self-sufficiency. I am able to fix all of my own problems and I'm... <laughs> And I'm determined to not need anyone else ever. The problem is, is I'm not actually superhuman. Um, I'm really, I'm just a pretty regular person that has accidents, gets things wrong, gets into problems, needs help. Um, I, and uh, my determination to be my own hero has led me into a few um, stupid paths. I broke my ankle once in three places and refused to go to the doctor for six months because I thought I could heal myself. <laughs> <laughs> I got caught up in a riot in Uganda because I'd been stupid and I'd spent three days living in a freezing cold apartment in sub-zero New York winter because I refused to admit that I'd made a mistake on the electricity and might need somewhere else to stay. So I think I can fix myself and maybe even save myself. I have, however, needed to be rescued on more than one occasion. And at one particular low ebb whilst living in America, I had to resort to some local assistance when buying a car, opening a bank account, um, getting a new driver's license, because it all just became incredibly complicated. And after I'd had a minor breakdown on the kitchen floor, I thought, you know what, maybe I actually might need some help. And the person I asked for help ended up being a really good friend to me um, over many years. Um, but one time I had failed to call her when I'd had an accident that I had um, ended up being knocked out in. And <laughs> I don't mean to make my look stuff like it's not that bad, it sounds worse than it is. But she was so mad that I hadn't called her or hadn't told anybody what had happened. And she said something to me that really struck me. She said, Ruth, I want to be your friend. But if you don't let me in, I can't be your friend. When you reject my help, what you do is you reject my friendship. And that comment really stuck with me. And it started a journey for me of trying to think, what is it that I find so difficult about admitting that I need help? And one of the things I realized is that I had implanted that same relational dynamic onto my relationship with God. God was an extra that I didn't really need. If I believed I could fix myself, heal myself, maybe even save myself, why would I need a savior? But my system of life was broken. My salvation, my safety was in my ability to cope, which I thought worked fine, except of course it doesn't. And in the story that Kiran read for us, we meet a woman caught up in her circumstances. She's trapped in brokenness. She has this encounter with Jesus. And as a result of this momentary encounter, her life is totally changed. We're in the second week of our sermon series, Streams in the Wasteland, which did cause me and Kath to sing, I'm not, not going to do it again, but the Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, Island in the Stream. Every time I hear Streams in the Wasteland, that's where I go. If that's not what it's about. It's about <laughs> how we grapple to be people who find our source of life, our thirst quenched in Jesus, and then transformed by the Holy Spirit, emboldened and empowered, his living waters then flow through us. And one of the key verses for us in this series is John 7, 38. You'll hear it probably um, every week, at least once. And it, Jesus says this, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And last week we were asking the question, are you thirsty? Are we thirsty for the living water? And today we're going to focus a little bit more on what might be preventing us from quenching our thirst with the living water, where we might be looking instead. 
And what happens when we turn away from where we were looking and refocus our attention through repentance to Jesus? So let's dive into the passage a bit. So Jesus is on the move. He's traveling through Samaria on his way back to Galilee. And at noon, the hottest part of the day, Jesus, interestingly, noticeably human, decides to take a rest. He sends his disciples on ahead and he sits down by a well. Maybe Jesus was just tired. Maybe he felt a prompting from God to stop and wait. We don't really know why he did, but what we do know is that this decision of Jesus started a series of unexpected events. The first of which is the appearance of a Samaritan woman at the well. Now, this might not seem that strange at first glance, but really it was uh, for a number of reasons, um, and I'm going to tell you why. Firstly, this was the wrong time of day for someone to appear at the well, and she was alone. So collecting water was a kind of communal event. It was done first thing in the morning, and if needed, again in the evening, the coolest times of the day, and it was done en masse. The women and girls from the village would go together, both for the safety of numbers, um, but also because it was a a communal moment. It was a moment of gossip. It was a moment of catching up on the news and doing life together. There's only one reason that this woman would be collecting water alone and at noon, and that is if she was an outcast from society and not welcome to be part of the community. Rejected by society, forced to take a risk to her own safety by going alone, she went in the moment when the rest of the village would be busy with other activities. And so she could avoid the whispers and stares, avoid the humiliation of rejection. And then the second surprising things happen. This woman, having seen Jesus sitting at the well, continues to approach him and draws water. So a woman alone uh, like this would not have approached the well if they had seen a man sat at it, but would have turned around, gone home and waited until the stranger was gone and then gone to get water. But she doesn't. It's possible she's just desperate. Maybe she doesn't care. Maybe she's so stubborn like me, or maybe she's just beaten down already by the rejection she's experienced that she just braces herself for more. And then the most surprising and unexpected thing happens because this man... And not just any man, a Jew, turns to her, a Samaritan, and has the audacity to ask for a drink. Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? And I like to read her response with just a hint of sarcasm in it. Uh, The Samaritan woman says to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus answers, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And the back and forth kind of continues until Jesus declares, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. And although they are talking about actual water from an actual well, there is, of course, classically, another level to this statement. Jesus is prophesying about himself. He's talking about the living water that is to come, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is the source of true satisfaction. Jesus is teeing this woman up. There's a type of water to drink that won't ever quench your true thirst, that you have to keep on drinking And then there is this living water that is an invitation to eternal life. And then we have the moment of revelation. When Jesus says, go and call your husband and come back. 
And she says, I've got no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. You know, quite often on a Sunday here at KXC, we'll do something a bit like what we did today um, when Kath shared a word or maybe somebody else will come up and share words. We make space to listen to God or at the end of a talk, we might pause and invite the Holy Spirit to speak prophetically to us. And maybe you've had the experience of someone sharing something either from the stage or directly to you from in a moment of prayer ministry and something that might make no sense to that person, might make no sense to anybody else at all. But for you, it's like a moment when your heart goes thunk and you think God is speaking right now. Or maybe you've been, it's been the other way around and you've had a word for somebody and given it to them and you've seen the effect that that word has them, on them. This moment of revelation that can change everything. And much of our discipleship is, uh, like Eugene Peterson describes it, this slow walk of obedience in the same direction. But there are also moments of breakthrough. Moments of prophetic revelation when everything changes in an instant. Jesus said, come follow me to a few young fishermen and they dropped their nets and ran. And a paralytic man, pick up your, your mat and walk. And he was healed in an instant. There are moments in our life, maybe it's a moment of conversion or a moment of prophecy, a moment of healing or even a moment of repentance when in an instant with just one word, everything changes. Jesus says to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. You have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Jesus has nailed this woman's story and the reason she is an outcast from the village in a single sentence. This is the source of this woman's shame and pain. But before we judge her too harshly, we, don't, we need to remember that, that an unmarried woman at that time was a, at a huge risk Without a husband or a male member of the family to take care of her and protect her, she was in danger of abuse and poverty and starvation. And we don't know her history. We don't know whether she has a series of five dead husbands, whether she's divorced, whether she's a prostitute. But we do know that she was relying on men to be a source of safety and security in a precarious world. And don't we all do that? We look for things to put our trust in. Maybe it's in our ability to take care of ourselves. Maybe it's in the dream of marriage and a family. Maybe it's in our jobs, our bank balances, our health. Maybe it's in our ability and our sense that we, if we can just be self-secure, if we can just be self-sufficient, then we're going to be fine. And this woman was caught up in this cycle of need and dependency. Her sustenance, her water came from the men in her home. And Jesus is not just stating a fact about her life or her relationship status. He's cutting straight to the root of her heart. Where is your focus? What are you building your life on? What perhaps even seemingly good things have become idols that take your attention away from the living water? Jeremiah 2.13, um, one of our other um, verses that we're going to be looking at a bit, is my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And Jeremiah is prophesying about the coming exile of the Israelite people, the lifting of God's hand of blessing and the consequences of their sin. And throughout the book of Jeremiah, and especially in the early chapters, God is explaining exactly why his chosen people were being punished. And it's summed up um, in the images of that verse, because they have abandoned God and have instead worshipped foreign idols. 
So in Jerusalem and in the surrounding um, area, there were three sources of water. There was fresh running water, streams and brooks, which uh, in Hebrew were called Mayim Kayim, which literally translates as living water. And every time we see the word in the Bible, living water, that's the word it is. Um, and it was just the colloquial word, word for water that was good for you, water that was clean um, and healthy. The second source of water was groundwater, like water from a well. And the third source was runoff water. Water that was collected by digging a pit in the ground, plastering it with limestone to prevent seepage, and then letting water collect in it. This was known as a cistern, and the water was often diseased and dirty, and it had silt and all kinds of stuff collecting in it. It was also a breeding ground for mosquitoes. It was the least good water. And what Jeremiah is saying is that rather than worship the true God, the source of living water, the Israelites had turned their attention to false idols by abandoning true worship in Yahweh, the living God, and instead choosing to worship false gods. They had traded the best of water supplies for the worst. And in John's gospel, Jesus's choice of language was not an accident. When he says to the woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd be asking me for water. This was about so much more than just quenching a thirst. This was about abandoning false gods and idols, turning with devotion and worship to the one true living God. And interestingly, that word for living here is the same one that Jesus uses in John 10, 10, when he says, I've come to give you abundant life. This living water is an invitation to a life of abundance. And Jesus, just like the prophet Jeremiah, is offering the woman and each one of us a choice. Stay in the life of sin you lead, a life built on a foundation of sand, worshipping false gods and drinking dirty water from a leaky cistern, or drink the living water that promises abundance and eternal life. Turn away from false gods. Give up on the idols that have been your source of life. Give up control and the striving for our own safety, focusing on the things that we think we need in order to be happy. Give up those things that we have worshipped and instead turn to Jesus. And the living water that Jesus is offering is grace and mercy and forgiveness of sins for all who acknowledge his Lord. It's the promise of eternal life. And he is saying to this Samaritan woman, it is available for you if you ask. And this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman ends with Jesus declaring who he is. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And this is the first in John's gospel of the declarative I am statements. And Jesus is telling her, I am the person that you and your community have been longing for. I am the one that has been prophesied about for generations. I am your redeemer. I am your savior. And it's like all of the I am statements in one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am everything you long for. And I am standing before you to give you living water. I am your Christ. I am he. And it is remarkable that it is given to this Samaritan woman of questionable morals, not a religious ruler, not an important figure in this community, not even a Jew, but this statement of who Jesus is, is given to this broken outcast of society. And Jesus is saying, the great I am, the great light that has come into this world to bring forgiveness of sins and salvation for all, this faith is available for everyone, regardless of your past, 
regardless of your cultural heritage, regardless of who the world says you are, regardless of the sins and mistakes you have made, the salvation is for all. There is no part of you, no part of your brokenness that his grace and mercy can't meet. And if we jump ahead a few verses, uh, the woman returns to the, her village, telling her community that she thinks she might have met the Christ. And the story ends several verses later. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This woman, such an outcast from society that she creeps alone in the heat of the day to fetch water, returns to the very community that rejected her to, to declare the truth of who Jesus is. And as a result, the entire town turned to Christ. It is a bonkers story. And it shows the power of transformation. And we talk about um, repentance as a sort of a turning away. We use um, the, the Greek word in the New Testament, metanoia, uh, which means a change in one's life resulting from penitence or spiritual conversion. This call of Jesus to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to turn away from a life of sin. And the word metanoia comes from the word meta, which is changed after being with, and noia, to literally think differently afterwards. So we are changed after being with Jesus. We are changed after an encounter with Jesus. And after that, we literally think differently. We act differently. And to repent is to allow the Holy Spirit to change us it's this 180 degree turn as a result of repentance or conversion. And this is what that woman experiences. She has this moment of conversion. Jesus says, I'm, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you're looking for. And she turns away from her life of sin and towards Jesus. But then she goes on better. She does another 180. And she turns back to the place of her shame and runs towards the darkness to take the light in. And the disciples at the upper room go from fearful, doubting, disappointed, hidden away behind locked doors to boldly proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this woman goes from skulking in the shadows, living a life of shame, to proclaiming the goodness of God. John 7:38 again, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, the rivers of living water will flow from, from within them. The fruit of an encounter with Jesus is a life changed. And then Without our doing it, that living water then flows out of us to touch those we meet. I, I, um, I learned to drive just after I'd graduated from university. I was working for a church in that same city and I, I took up some driving lessons and my instructor came from uh, a council estate on the edge of the city and I was the very first Christian that he'd ever met. And he was fascinated by the fact that I was a Christian. He thought it somehow meant that I was doing my bit for society, so he did his bit by giving me a discount, which <laughs> obviously I took. <laughs> he also thought it would be really funny to see just how far he could push this Christian girl. Now, he was a little rough around the edge. His language and his jokes were atrocious, and he would push and push at the boundaries, and on more than one occasion, I stopped the car in the middle of the road and said, if you ever said that to me, I'm getting out of the car. But we did have a lot of fun. And in between me trying not to laugh too much at his jokes, we spent a lot of our lessons talking about Jesus and why I was a Christian. 
And one day I got an unexpected call from him and he wanted to know um, if I wanted a lesson that afternoon. Um, I said, sure. And we went out later that day. And he told me that the night before he'd found out that his wife was having an affair. Um, and his mates had said he should go and put the other guy in the hospital and then get started on his wife. And he wanted to know what I thought he should do. <laughs> Somewhere... <laughs> Somewhere in the depths of his mind, he had got something about the idea that Christianity was to do with forgiveness. He wanted to know if I thought he should forgive his wife, and if so, how he could do it. Now, I was 21. <laughs> there was nothing I had done that meant I had any kind of experience about what to say to him. Uh, but it, for some reason, in this moment of crisis, I was the person that he called, and, it, and I realized it wasn't really about me. Like, it wasn't anything to do with who I was. It was something about God. It was something about this Jesus that he had kind of loosely encountered when I got in the car with him. Something about the Holy Spirit that comes with us everywhere that we go. And I didn't lead him to the Lord there and then. And I did say that he could pray for the strength to forgive. And I know that he didn't go and beat up the other guy. And he stayed with his wife. And like this was 20 years ago. So I've no idea what actually happened to him. But somewhere along the ways, in that moment, unintentionally, he had begun to meet with God. He had encountered something of the Holy Spirit and was seeking for more. And when we encounter Jesus, we are invited into that repentance. We turn from our sin. We are changed in that moment. And that Holy Spirit that fills us flows out of us like living water. I want to make one more um, observation about this passage. Um, in the conversation Jesus has with this Samaritan woman, she asks him a question. She says, uh, Sir, the woman, um, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. In essence, she was saying then, come on then, you're so smart. If you're such a great prophet, answer me this. Is it my mountain or your temple? Who's right? My people or your people? And Jesus answers her, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for our salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. And Jesus is challenging both Jewish and Samaritan traditions, saying the time is coming, and in fact it is here, it has now come, when true worship won't be constrained by your cultural heritage or religious practice. It won't be about geography or history. It will be about worshipping the Father in spirit, in truth, and it will be open to the whole world. It won't be about being in the right location or about doing the right kind of religious observances, but about knowing that cleansing water that gives us life. And I've been reflecting a lot in the last um, little while about these words, to worship in spirit and in truth. And I think it's a slightly enigmatic phrase. Um, you hear it a lot. We sing it a lot. We, it gets banded about. Um, and there are lots of different ways it can be interpreted. Um, and I was thinking, what is it from that phrase that God wants to say to us today? And I think it's something about an invitation into an authentic relationship with him. True worship, worship in spirit and truth, is standing in front of our resurrected Christ, hearing the words that he loved us first and responding with heartfelt abandon. True worship is being known by God and worshipping face to face with the Father. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And later on, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
Worshipping in spirit and in truth is about being fully known by God about a worship that is face to face and intimate, not through a veil, not through a priest, but beholding the glory of the Lord. And as we do so, being changed into the likeness of Christ. And in the story of the Samaritan woman, the barriers of past moral character, gender and ethnicity were not the final determinations of being welcomed into the Father's embrace. And for me, barriers of stubbornness, self-sufficiency or arrogance, for all of us, past sin, current patterns of behavior that lead us away from Jesus and not towards him. Guilt over mistakes made, idols we have worshipped, places other than God that we have put our trust in. These are not the final verdict on whether the Father loves us and on whether we can know that love for ourselves and whether in doing so we would have a moment of healing and transformation that changes us. It's about offering all of that stuff to Jesus and in exchange receiving his gift of living water, being invited into a moment of encounter. So I think the question is, will we do it? There's a life of joy and abundance that we are being invited into, but we have to do the 180 turn. And then we have to do it every day, again and again. And of course, we don't actually do it. It's the Holy Spirit in us that works that change. Paul writes, he that began a good work in you will complete it. Our bit is just to respond to the call, to open up our hands for the living water, to drop our nets and follow him when he calls, to be a vessel of living water so that it flows to the world around us. So are you thirsty? Where are you looking to quench your thirst? And will you let the Holy Spirit break in and through an encounter with Jesus, follow his call to abundant life.